Ballet dancers perform magic on stage. They run across the floor on their toes, pirouette again and again without getting dizzy or throwing up, and suddenly take flight. And they're not bound by gravity like the rest of us mortals. But as my next two guests will admit, there's a lot of sweat and sometimes actual blood behind their glorious feats. On today's Please Explain, we will explore the secret life of a ballerina with Tika Teller, whose 16-year career included being a principal dancer with the Houston Ballet, and Ashley Bowder, a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet. And I'm very pleased to welcome both of you to our show. Hello. Thank you. And uh, we also invite our audience to join in these conversations. You can call us at 212-433-9692, write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Uh, how early, um, uh, I ask each of you, we'll, we'll start with you, Tika, because you're the, the senior member here. <laughs> uh, how uh, early did you start dancing or thinking about becoming a dancer? Well, in my heart, I was a dancer from the time I was about two years old. It was all I could ever think of wanting to do. I don't know what implanted that seed, that idea in me, but I told my mother very definitively that the only two things I wanted were to have my ears pierced and to have ballet lessons because I wanted to be a ballerina. I got the ear piercing when I was three, and after much begging and banging around in the living room (laughs) with the dancing, I got my ballet lessons when I was five and a have. Similar story for you, Ashley? Um, not really. I was not really a kid who danced around when I was very young. I had a mathematician grandfather who loved to teach me math problems when I was three and four, and a grandmother who read to me and taught me how to read at a very young age. I didn't start until I was five or six, and my mom and I were shopping in the mall, and we ran into this old lady who um, happened to be Marcia Dale Weary, the director of Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet. And I asked my mother a million questions after that and found out what ballet was and that my mother had danced when I was little, and I wanted nothing more than to do exactly what my mother had done. So I begged her so much that she had to sign me up the next day. Both of you had to beg for this. Absolutely. (laughs) Can't some kids start dancing too early before their bones are fully developed? Well, well, yes, I think, you know... The, the the mind concentration, too, you know, if you start too young, it's not really, it's dancing around, it's not really studying ballet. It's more until, like play? It's more like play until they're about five or six and their brain is developed enough to do that. But for the bones and things, it, it has a lot to do with strength and the mental ability to understand how to use the body. Exactly. And, you know, the, the creative element that happens for these creative dance classes when kids are toddlers and such is really wonderful for uh, opening up the imagination to music and the marriage of of movement to music. Um, But yes, until a child is really five or six and can start to understand the classroom etiquette and how to apply some body knowledge to what they're doing, that's really the beginning of a a training process. Once you convinced your mothers to (laughs) let you study, how involved did your parents become? Well, uh, I I just kept begging and begging for more. Uh, at first, you know, it's one of those things that happens once a week. You go to your 
your ballet class. And at my particular studio, they wouldn't let you start full-on ballet until you'd had two or three years of tap dancing, and that was to teach you rhythm and, and the rhythm of the music and Do you movement. think that was good? I actually think it was good. Of course, I hated tap dancing because, <laughs> because I really wanted my ballet lessons. But um, eventually, I got through the initial stages and got my full-on ballet lessons, and then it ramps up pretty quickly. By the time I was 10 or 11, uh, even though I was in the central San Joaquin Valley of California, I was taking five ballet classes a week and rehearsing with the local ballet company. And are there good teachers in San Joaquin Valley? Well, there are a lot of good teachers out there. There are also a lot of not-so-good <laughs> teachers out there. I happen to be very fortunate to have a, a really wonderful teacher that was my primary teacher until I left to go to Houston Ballet Academy, my professional dance school. Um, but, yes, there are really good teachers out there. And, Asha, you had good teachers? I had excellent teachers. Um, Where were you studying? I studied at the Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, it's ranked among the top of the U.S. It's, I think it's the top school that's not associated with an actual ballet company in I the U.S. I always thought of Carlisle as a place where the where Jim Thorpe went to school. It It is, and we have lots of car shows <laughs> and things like that. Um, but we happen to have one of the best ballet schools th- in the country, and they've just expanded. They're wonderful. My teacher's had the school open for over 50 years, and she's still teaching the little ones. She's still down on her hands and knees at the age of 80. I'm speaking with Ashley Bowder, who's a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, and Tika Teller, a former principal dancer with the Houston Ballet, who's had a 16-year career uh, in dance and is the author of Microcultures, Ballet Dancers, also the creator of Everyday Ballet. This is WMYC, WMYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. And uh, again, we invite you to join in the conversation. If you wish, you can call us at 212-433-9692. Write to us on the show page at WMIC.org or at Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Since I brought this up earlier, what's the secret to pirouetting many times without getting dizzy or feeling nauseous? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you do get very dizzy. Something like Swan Lake, which, you know, is very, you know, known in the public. There's the 32 Fuertes in the Black Swan Coda. And I think after about 16, about halfway through, you are quite dizzy. But we have we spot our heads, so we try to fix our eyes and our head on one spot in front of us. And as we turn, we kind of whip our head around. And that keeps you upright, I think, for the most part. <laughs> for the, hopefully it keeps yes. you upright. Because yes. yeah, I've tried that. You've tried it? I, <laughs> yeah. Still fell. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, keeping your eyes fixed, you know, balance is one of those funny <clears throat> things with ballet because we are so much in movement. There's no fixed place of balance, but we use that spot. And sometimes in the theaters that I performed in, you could actually look out across the orchestra level of the audience, and there would be a light where the box was, the control box was, in the back. And so sometimes, at least for a little while, you could fix your gaze on that. I'd imagine that there are times when it doesn't work out, and you're doing it, and you're dancing before a big audience. Oh, yes. Actually, I'm uh, the New York City Ballet opens next week, and the first thing that I'm dancing back from my maternity leave is Vienna Waltzes. And I come out... Is it the Balanchine Vienna? Yes, oh. it's the, uh, the Balanchine Vienna Waltzes. I do the second movement, and when I come out, I do Chenet turns and these jumps, and then I turn to the back and I do Chenet turns, but there's a mirror in the back. So with the stage lights, it's kind of dim with these white lights from the sides and then the mirror in the back. I get very dizzy, 
And every time I stop moving, I have to really, really focus my eyes and trust that my feet are on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Learning to trust your body, especially as you're flying around the stage and yeah. all of those lights become a whirring kind of yes, mass. Yes, it does. And it, it really does. It becomes a mental game where you're like, I'm okay, I know what I'm doing, and feel it in your body instead yeah. of using sight. Yeah, you can't use sight. You really have to locate yourself firmly inside your own physicality and, and your points of contact with the floor wherever they are on the bottoms of your feet or if you happen to have a hand on the floor in some way. I'd yeah. imagine that it might be easy to get so superstitious. <laughs> and I've heard that there are it is, that and ballet dancers have lots of superstitions. Oh, you know, you see people. Some people have to go to the center and knock it with two fists. Some people cross <laughs> really? themselves. Some people have to put their right shoe on before their left, or they have a special thing that they put in their shoe, or a special hairpin they put in. I, you know, I've seen it all. And it's a hairpin in your shoe. A hairpin in your hair. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is easy to get like that, especially if you if you do something. And I've done it a few times. It's like you do something a little bit out of the ordinary, and then you have a fantastic show where you you make this turn that you were nervous about or something, and then you think, well, maybe I should just do that one little thing again. Maybe it'll work. And it, you know, you come to realize it's a little ridiculous, but you still kind of do it just in case. Yeah, we're, well, we're so involved in the details of things. And one of the things that I, I recognize from many dancers is that there's a very ritualistic kind of approach to performance, often, you know, done in the same way, with the same format, with the same objects. Absolutely. And in some ways, it's this kind of discipline and regimentation and ritualization of the preparations that allow you to let go in the performance. Does it matter whether you're performing with a live orchestra or canned music? Well, I would say... Because the music would be exactly the same every time. I would say the, the live music really gives a, a whole different energy to, to the performance. I mean, when you're on yes. stage, uh, you know, you can feel the orchestra underneath you the stage. Feel you can the feel vibration. the vibrations. Yeah, yeah it's but, amazing. But then again, you know, it's... So it's the music is different every time it's played live. There's real humans playing it, and you can kind of feed the energy off of each other, especially if you're doing a smaller or, like piece um, with only a few instruments and you can see each other. Mm-hmm. Or um, you have a piano concerto where the pianist is really breathing with you. But if you're dancing the canned music, then for me at least, it becomes sort of a, a fun game to see how much I can play with the music in something that I've already done. And I've established that this is the musicality this time. But then next time I'm like, but what if I change it just a little bit this way and play with it? And it becomes almost fun for me to do it that way too. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing with the details. Again, it's all about the details. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so much fun at the, the level of being a professional dancer because you trained all that time to be able to play yeah. on that level. And it's wonderful. Tika, you performed in Houston, mm-hmm. but you also uh have performed in in Cuba, haven't you? Uh, Are the I, stages as good? <laughs> I've I've trained over at the Cuban National yeah. Ballet at their facility. Um, facilities vary all over the world. Uh, I've performed in China before it was open, and um, we we didn't have Western toilets in the theater. We had the, the hole in the ground. Well, what about the floors? I've always the, wondered. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> well, the floor <laughs> in, even all wood is not the yeah, same. Yeah. The, well, the floor at National Ballet of Cuba doesn't have marley. It's yeah. all wood. But it's uh, and it's not really sprung, so it's very hard. But it's worn down in a way that you can still do it on point. It's a, m- more slippery than you know we're used to, but you kind of get used to it quickly when you're there. Yeah. And it's fun to realize how many people have danced on this floor and the tradition that this floor has 
the, the church that's been built literally upon that floor. It's a very cool experience. All the sweat that you know has gone into a place. Possibly I mean, one of the blood, things, too. <laughs> possibly blood, blood, sweat, and tears, as yep. the saying goes, uh, is is just magnificent because you you can feel it. Um, the wear in a floor. Uh, I was one time uh, dancing in uh, Brazil, and we called the stage El Camello, the uh, the camel, because it has sort of these undulating kind of lumps in it. And uh, as as dancers, we really have to make those adjustments real time. You could kind of try to scan the stage and see what you're in for, but, you know, pieces of costumes fall off or, you know, there's a warp in the floor that you don't know about. And so we have to be very sensitized to uh, both identifying changes and then making those adjustments. Mm-hmm. Do you Are you aware of the history of a theater that you're dancing in? For example, if you were in Russia, uh, where uh, the, the same theater might uh, have... Uh, been a, a place where dance uh, ballet has been performed for 300 years. Uh, would you be thinking about that? Absolutely. I've I've performed at the Mariinsky, and mm. you are very aware. Just walking into that building, being backstage, seeing how old it is, seeing the little dust in the corner, and and just even walking on the stage and looking out in the audience, you have a feeling of how many people have stood here, how many people have sat out there and watched. Does it affect your performance? Um. I think it, you know, for me, because I'm a guest there, too, I don't live there, it makes it even more special to know that I can, I am now part of that history there, you know, at the um, at the Opera Garnier in Paris, mm-hmm. being able to perform in places like that and being able to count yourself a part of that history is something very special as a ballet dancer. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you feel a sense of history and that, you know, you're just a, a piece of that mm-hmm. continuing on this wonderful, beautiful tradition of ballet. My guests are two ballerinas, Tika Teller and Ashley Bowder. Uh, we're talking about dance. We're going to talk about some of the, 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 the rougher parts of dance after we come back from a little break and uh, also uh, ask some questions that our audience uh, is asking. Uh, We'll do that right after this. back with a look at the secret lives of ballerinas with Tika Teller and Ashley Bowder. Uh, and we've been listening to uh, excerpts from Swan Lake. Usually this is all the slow music, but you don't always dance to the slow music. No. <laughs> In fact, it's, yeah, it's right. quite, quite thrilling to dance yes. at speed. One of my favorite things to do for the codas of the big pot of uh, was to ask my conductor to go ahead and start out even and then pick it up because mm-hmm. the thrill of speed is actually one of the most yeah. fun things to do. Actually, most of the ballets that I dance in my repertory at New York City Ballet are the fastest ballets. I, I uh, really have to practice my fast fork a lot to get it. You're doing the Vienna waltzes. Doing Vienna waltzes. But you can't waltz in in, in toe shoes, can you? Um, Well, my movement, I do the second movement, is the only one that's on point, and then I take them off for the fifth waltz. (laughs) Don't shoes play a really important role in the life of a dancer? How many shoes 
would you typically go through in a season? Oh, my goodness. Well, it, it depends on what kind of season you have and the, the kinds of ballets that are in the rep. But uh, we order them 20 pairs at a time, and it would not be unusual to dispense with a pair with a really tough ballet like Swan Lake if you wore just that one pair in a two-hour, three-hour oh, rehearsal. I wear two or three pairs for Swan Lake. Yeah, exactly. Maybe first act, you would do wear a different pair than the second act? Yes, absolutely. Because, it, because the dance... Requires different kinds of shoes. They, they do. You know, the 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 second act of Swan Lake that's very slow, and then the third act, which is Black Swan, requires two different types of shoes. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, you you also don't want to go on stage with a brand new pair of very hard shoes. So by the time you finish, even just the adagio part in White Swan, your shoes are close to being done. Yeah. It's, How do you break them in? Well, so, yeah, the shoes go through this whole breaking in process, and it's it's funny because you get this beautiful pair of shoes. They're so shiny and just pristine, but the first things we do to them are bang them against concrete, slam them indoors, take hammers to them, soak them in water or alcohol. We basically distress the shoes immediately so that they start to conform to our feet. Are certain ones better depending on the size of a stage, or we were talking about I don't know the if kind it did, of floor. Yeah, it's the the kind of floor for sure. You know, if you know you're dancing on a harder floor, sometimes you need a harder shoe if you're going to be doing a lot of things on point because you don't want to bruise your toenails. Um, so you want them to have a good form to them. But then sometimes if you're jumping a lot, you want a very soft shoe. Yeah. It's uh, and, and also, it's particularly that left point shoe for all of those classical ballets where you mm-hmm. have to do a lot of turns on one leg. It's always that your left foot is pointed down on the floor. So sometimes you need a very solid left shoe mm-hmm. and, a, and a less uh, a particular right shoe. Yeah, or, <laughs> like, you know, you're doing something like the Sleeping Beauty, and in the Rosadagio you have this whole section of balances on your right foot. I make the left shoe I don't care so much about. I do pirouettes on it, but it's okay. You know, I can adapt to that. But that balancing and letting go of that boy's hand, I have to have a perfect right <laughs> shoe. What yes. shape are your feet in? Don't many dancers uh, have feet that are kind of mangled uh, because they, they're on point? <laughs> you see some atrocities. They don't, they don't want yes. to show their feet to strangers? <laughs> there are quite a few ballet dancers who will not wear open-toed sandals. <laughs> um, I'm not one of them. I, I fortunately have pretty wide, flat-toed feet. Short toes and they're flat, so they're kind of the shape of a point shoe. Um, but they're still not that pretty. <laughs> um, my my husband doesn't um, really like them to be out that well, much. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm here to report from you know a dozen years beyond being on the stage with my point shoes that although at 12 my feet looked 90, uh, now <laughs> at midlife my feet look age appropriate and they're not so bad. But like they like heal? Ashley, they do heal, and I still do wear my point shoes on occasion. But um, like Ashley, I have a foot that has a fairly squared off toes which is actually pretty beneficial and, and protects some of the uh, knuckles from getting particularly damaged. How, how often do your toes bleed? Um, you know, now at this point in my career, it would take a lot for there to be a mishap like that. But when I was younger and, you know, just switching shoes, I switched shoes a few years ago. I switched brands. And there's an adjustment period, and you will get a really nasty blister all of a sudden. And sometimes it happens within a minute of dancing, and you're on stage, and you can't, you know, you're not in rehearsal, you can't take off your shoe. And you, you just get 
a really unfortunate <laughs> sore. Yeah. I, you know, over time, the feet develop calluses and thickened skin, so that really protects you. Um, and in fact, if dancers get pedicures, they're often very careful to uh, indicate to the person doing this uh, not to take off the callus yeah, because s- they need it. You see them pull out the little razor and you go, no, 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 no. no, no. no. <laughs> now, a lot of uh, people have been writing in. Judy from Greenpoint writes on our show page, I would love to take an adult ballet class, but from what I've heard for the adult beginner classes in New York City, you have to go in already knowing steps. I know nothing. Uh, Do your guests suggest that I start with one of those bar exercise classes? Uh, Actually, I can weigh in on this. I actually, uh, post-ballet career, have started a company called Everyday Ballet for this very reason. I realize in my life as a mother and then going to college late in life and that I really needed my ballet training for everything. And in fact, I started to feel injured for not doing the ballet. So I thought, what a shame that adults don't have greater access to ballet without feeling intimidated or like they already need to know something. So I've uh, created a system of ballet instruction called Everyday Ballet that allows people to come in without any experience, but it forms around the principles of posture and the kind of poise and power that real ballet training can give you. Um, And so I uh, definitely go and check out my my website, everydayballet.co. I offer these kinds of classes for that very reason. Ballet is a magnificent technique and Everybody should have access to it. Carla from Milburn, New Jersey, writes on our show page, I have a five-year-old daughter who loves dancing. She's into ballet, jazz, and gymnastics, and my husband and I are always apprehensive about encouraging her too much because everyone always points out how brutal and difficult the life of a dancer can be. What would be the best way to go about it? Um, Yeah, I think that it is, you know, it is a brutal career and a brutal life choice in certain respects. But if somebody really loves it and you have a passion for it, you know, I feel like you should really let them let them go and do it if they really want to. Because there is nothing like having a career that you love and doing something that doesn't feel like work. Didn't you recently have a child, uh, a daughter named Violet? Uh, As I understand it. Balanchine discourages dancers from having children. Have things changed? I've heard that a lot, but then there are a lot of ballerinas like Melissa Hayden, Allegra Kent, um, who were very popular dancers with Balanchine that he loved who had children and came back to the stage. Allie wrote, Every dancer gets hurt and has to learn how to cope when not doing what they're meant to do. What are those pivotal moments for them, and what did they do with their, she wants to know, with your spare time? (laughs) School. (laughs) School, yeah, spare time. There's, you know, there's not a lot of spare time. It's often taken up with um, the sewing of point shoes and preparing for the next day's rehearsals Mm -hmm. or performance. But I know that um, a lot of dancers, myself Mm -hmm. and probably Ashley included, uh, we, we have to leave official schooling quite early. And so there's this idea of like wanting to learn more, you know, book learning and, and participate in some things that our careers don't naturally lend themselves to. Um, but I've also spent a lot of my injured time retraining my body. Ballet is so specific in the turnout and all of these things that you do that can be very hard on the joints. And I make sure that if when I get injured, you know, I, I do take a lot of school classes when I have that time. But I retrain it in a way that it's cross-training, that it's good for my body. It's retraining it to be sort of normal and take the stress off and the, sort of some of the damage that I've done. Tika, didn't you also go to college, which is not yes. common for dancers who just spend so much of their time 
Focusing on their careers? Absolutely. Well, I went, I'm living my life in reverse. I had, you know, the long career and then motherhood, and then I went to school. Um, And uh, it actually, I feel like my ballet training really set me up well for taking on, uh, I actually went to Columbia, a rigorous educational path. Um, And that's because dancers have to be very, very committed. And they have to be very present to the details of things. Mm -hmm. And so I found that um, that piece of it, uh, and the willingness to take on criticism and then use it for benefit was also something. Because the criticism can be very hurtful. Some teachers are not all that diplomatic. Well, and and now, no, yeah. And now, (laughs) too, though, I know that the majority of the dancers in the New York City Ballet are in college. Most of them go to either Columbia University or Fordham University. And I think that we're seeing, because ballet dancers have to be so intelligent to make it to the professional level, um, you know, we're really seeing a this whole big movement of uh, later education for dancers and applying all of these things that make you such a great dancer to life. Tika, you told me about some of the things I might not have guessed, the dangers of, for example, of tutus. Yes. (laughs) I I was sharing with you the story of uh, at the end of Swan Lake and Houston Ballet's version, Odette has to climb the top of, to the top of the rock to uh, do a a balance, an arabesque, and fall off into the lake. Mm -hmm. uh, To her death in the lake. Yeah, to her death in the lake. And um, first of all, it's dim on stage and there's a lot of activity. Uh, Wearing 18 inches, 16 to 18 inches of tulle out in front of your own feet and trying to climb the stairs as if that wasn't treacherous enough, you then need to poise yourself right on the tip of your toe and and really trust those six guys down there behind that that rolling silk that they're going to catch you mm-hmm. as you land. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you, you actually get hazard pay as a dancer mm-hmm. because it is hazardous, but you hope you don't crack a rib or anything. You, you say you can't see the it. steps because the, the, yeah, the tutu, tutu no, is no, no. blocking your view? Yeah. yeah, the very first entrance in The Sleeping Beauty, you run out down a ramp and then you come down four <laughs> stairs. And if you look down, all you see is tutu. You don't see the stairs unless you push it down with your feet. So you really have to trust that you know where that step, first step is. Otherwise, you've seen quite a few spills. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> don't yeah. many dancers smoke? Isn't that an unhealthy habit? Uh, I, 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 what do you think now? Well, now you see so m- much less smoking. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lot of the guys. It's like this <laughs> tough guy thing, I think. Um I don't think hardly any of the women smoke anymore. It's, you know, they've you can't do it in public buildings anymore. You have to be a certain amount away from doorways. And it's just been so discouraged. And, you know, we've had so much health research. So um, much care has been taken to improve the health of the dancers' bodies. Because it's supposed well-being. to keep the weight down, I gather. I, you know, a lot of people say I live on coffee and cigarettes, and you know what? That's just not feasible. It's not. And mm-hmm. there's been so much research and so much attention paid in every ballet company of creating a healthy team that it's not really a reality anymore. No. To yeah, be doing you that. really want to take just, care of your physical instrument. Just one more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it that I, when I see dancers on the subway, they're always standing in the first position? <laughs> Because it's comfortable. <laughs> it is, actually. It becomes more comfortable it's for you? More, yeah. It's very difficult for us to be parallel, even though every physical therapist who's listening will say, you have to stand parallel. 
and I make a concentrated effort, but it's just, it's normal, it's relaxed, we're always open and turned out. Exactly, and you know, in, in many ways, the turnout uh, was, was conditioned in the beginning to help you move more easily, so a slight turnout of the toes is actually pretty comfortable. The New York City Ballet's 2016-17 season opens on the 20th of this month, as next Tuesday, at Lincoln Center with the fifth anniversary of its annual Fall Fashion Gala. A full schedule is available on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate. My great thanks to Ashley Bowder, who will be giving her first performance since giving birth to her daughter on Friday, the September 23rd in Balanchine's Vienna Waltzes for being here. And Tika Teller, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. you.